0: Hi, all. Welcome to the Forge America Missional Podcast Roundtable Edition. My name is Brooklyn Colburn, and today we are joined by Alan Bradford.
1: Hey, it's good to be with you guys.
0: And Terry Ishii. Hey,
2: everybody good to be here.
0: We got Roland Smith.
2: Hey, welcome from Colorado.
3: And today we're also joined by Jamie. Hi,
2: Jamie.
3: Hello, my name is Jamie, and I'm with you from Columbia, South Carolina, where I serve in a church as pastor of prayer, discipleship, and missional living.
4: Awesome. Jamie, so awesome. Uh, Jamie is a, 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 a new friend. Uh, she's uh, doing the Forge Partnership, uh, and so uh, one of the things that we've been kind of working through and um, is helping her church uh, mobilize and those things. And so, Jamie, you guys are just starting your Forge training, correct? That's right. And then how many people have you guys got like lined up to walk through this
3: thing? We're in our second meeting, and we have about 30 people.
4: That's awesome. That's so cool. And so the reason why uh, I invited Jamie to join us today uh, is Jamie uh, is a seasoned... Pastor, but she's also a a a missionary. Uh, She lived in Europe for eight years, and you lived in Portugal and Spain, correct? Correct. Yeah, and then, but you were kind of all over Europe, right? What are some of the other countries that you kind of did some work in?
3: I worked mostly in those two: Italy and France, and then a little bit with um, Switzerland, Germany as well.
1: Very cool. It sounds like she's just rubbing it in, right? (laughs) You know, it's like, here's all the cool places I've been.
3: It was hard coming back and talking about your mission work and telling them that you worked in France and Italy.
1: <laughs> yeah, No, it's good. it's good.
4: Well, one of the reasons we wanted you, because you're an amazing person, but we also wanted you to be on the podcast is today we're talking about cultural exegesis. And so, uh, exegesis is this idea of, uh, breaking down or analyzing, uh, certain things, and typically we think of biblical exegesis is where we're looking at the scriptures and we're analyzing it. We're trying to figure out uh, understanding meaning, context, and all of those sorts of things. Well, today we're going to talk about cultural exegesis, and this is the idea of looking at our culture, breaking it down, analyzing it, and helping understand it so that we can properly and more efficiently impact people, that they might have a meaningful interaction with the gospel. And so, we have a ton of thoughts on this. And so, today is going to be one of our more practical uh, episodes. And so, let's jump into this. And so, Bradford, you have some thoughts on kind of our history. You're going to talk about monkeys today, so I'm excited. (laughs) Uh, Why don't you you kick us off and, and give us some thoughts on what you when you think of culture exegesis, what comes to mind?
1: Well, okay. I'm not necessarily going to talk about monkeys, but we could talk about monkeys if we want to, but no, one of the thoughts I had was define let's, let's define reality. Let's talk about culture. All right. So the culture that we live in. And so we are all people who, um, for the most part, we are entrenched in a Christian culture. Okay. And so we have inherited a particular view, particular ideas, and a particular um, way of going about things. And, um, I heard this recently, but a lot of what we inherited comes back to a a court trial that happened in 1925, and it really helped define Christian culture in in America. And that was it was the Scopes Monkey Trial. And at the time, if you at the time in 1925, Christianity was by far the dominant religion in the U.S. It was being taught in the school, especially the idea of creationism. Uh, But Darwinism was starting to gain ground, and there were all these conversations popping up about well, shouldn't we be teaching, you know, Darwinism as well? Well, just down the road from me, I'm here in Knoxville, Tennessee, just down the road, there's Dayton, Tennessee. And there was a gentleman by the name of John Scopes. He was a substitute high school teacher. And he was accused of violating the Tennessee's Butler Act, which made it unlawful to teach human evolution in any state funded school. So what happened was uh, people took him to court and Scopes was fine. He was, it was found guilty. He was fined hundred bucks. Although it was, it was overturned on the technicality. But the trial kind of ended up serving its purpose of drawing intense national publicity as really national reporters flocked to Dayton to cover all these big name lawyers. So like, for example, you had Williams Jennings Bryant, who was a three-time presidential candidate. He argued for the prosecution. Clarence Darrow, the famed defense attorney, he spoke for scopes and what happened was the trial really publicized two camps. It was kind of the modernists who said evolution was not consistent, was not inconsistent with religion. And you had fundamentalists who said, you know, Hey, the word of God has revealed the Bible took priority over all human knowledge. And the case was seen as both kind of a theological contest um, and a trial on whether modern science regarding the creation evolution controversy should be taught in schools. So, in reality, like the Christians won the case, but after a while, it kind of it just all seemed a little ridiculous. Like it didn't seem very scientific, and so schools started to adopt Darwinism. But here's the thing: the thing that this trial did, it was it was basically America took Christianity to court, <laughs> and and there was this kind of the reaction in the church. Essentially, what Christianity said was, Hey said, "Look, if you're going to not play by our rules, we're going to take our ball and we're going to go home." And so here's what's funny. In reaction, Christianity started to create its own culture. Uh, In fact, right down in Dayton, Tennessee, you have uh, Bryan College. And it was started as a reaction to the Scopes Monkey Trial. And what we started to do as the church, we started to build our own little kingdom. So we have our own schools, our own publishing, our own bookstores, our own music, our own really bad Christian t-shirts. We even have our own Christian mints, right? And the reason this subculture was created was because of Darwinism, which is funny because one of the tenets of Darwinism is survival of the fittest, right? And that's what Christianity said. Christianity said, fine, we're going to create our own island and everything outside of it can just die off. So we have inherited this kind of Christian um, kingdom, this own little culture. I didn't start going to church till I was like 14 and my parents drugged me to church and it was awful. I hated it. I didn't come to Jesus till I was like 17 somewhere in there and then started to really get involved, like really kind of go, okay, what is this thing, the church, all this stuff. And I changed, I became a part of that culture, like got deeply entrenched. But now we're starting to say, you know what, we can't just live in this culture and I don't want to talk about whether the culture is good or bad. It's more the idea. We can't just stay here isolated We need to understand the greater culture of what's going on around us Um, to, as you said, Terry, to exegete that culture, to understand it, understand why uh, people think the way they do, why they act the way they do, uh, understanding the geography and the place, the history of of what is going on. So what I'd love to do is um, I'm going to ask Jamie first. Jamie, in your experience, like how have you done this? How have you exegeted culture?
3: So I'm going to relate this to my experience being actually in another country, uh, and I think when you are sent as an overseas missionary, you automatically have the posture of a learner because you know that you don't know the culture
1: yeah.
3: you don't know the language, you don't know you have never tried the foods, you don't know their history, like you don't know anything you're starting with a totally blank slate, and so um I think maybe that's one of the mistakes that we make here is that we assume that we do know the culture because we live here and have always lived here. So I moved back to the United States and I had been gone nearly a decade. I moved to a new region of the U S and I realized that I have to learn the culture here. It's different. Um, And so I think that's one of the things is just realizing that we have to be learning it and not making an assumption that we already understand it because this is where we're from. Um, and then for me, I've been trying to think like, how did I learn the culture in the places that I lived? And I think it's just listening a lot, asking tons of questions uh, and observing. And even if you don't think of your pers- self as being a really like analytical person or someone who can connect all the dots, you don't really have to if you just ask really direct questions. I mean, if you just start asking a lot of people like, Um, what do you think about this? Or what would you say is the most important things about your culture or whatever? They'll give you their own narrative about it. And maybe one person's narrative isn't right on, but the more of those you hear, you'll start hearing patterns and then you will start seeing that being played out in real life around you. And I, I just feel like that's one of the key things is just asking tons of questions and listening. Mm -hmm.
4: Yeah, I think, I think listening is a, is a key, key, key uh, tool. I mean, if you don't listen well, you're not gonna do this very well. Uh, and, you know, in, in thinking cultural exegesis, I think, it's, I think it's important that, you know, what, what we're aiming for, what we're looking for, is we wanna interpret um, a specific culture's, like, worldview. And so we wanna, like, what's, what is the worldview here? And so I know Europe is completely different than here, uh, though things are changing here. Uh, like, what's the longing of a culture? So, which that is so unique because you can go from neighborhood to neighborhood, and they all have different longings. Uh, as Bradford talks about, um, you know, some things in in his in Knoxville and and those things, that it's going to be very different from what people are longing for in Austin. So, like, what are people's worldviews? What's their longing? And then, like, what are their actual needs? Like, what are the actual felt, tangible needs that a community or culture has? And so. It, yeah, it it takes a ton. And and I agree, Jamie, that if, you know, people who want to steer away from the analytical side or I'm not, I don't like to analyze things and stuff like that. I I think this is, it's crucial. It's important. I mean, Roland, I mean, what, I mean, you've, you've had some experience in this. What are your thoughts on
2: that? Yeah, I've got, I I think one of the biggest mistakes um, I've made, and I think that we make as kind of missional people is having preconceptions of a culture Um, and I, we had this experience, Kitty and I did when we moved from South, the South Denver Metro area to the Colorado Springs area and Colorado Springs, if people don't know already is kind of considered like the kingdom of all the bad stuff that Alan mentioned. Like, you know, every, every, uh, mission agency has a headquarters here. <laughs> every publisher is here. Every, you know, every, everything is here. And the mints may even be made here. I don't know <laughs> if they are, but I wouldn't be surprised if they're not. But we we were dri- driving to Colorado Springs to move. And Kitty and I had this, like, um, al- almost this pit in our stomach. We felt called here to join this church community on staff, but we didn't like the, the Christian... Um, persona that the area had because of all of these organizations. I mean, I'm not against Christians, but it was felt like we were kind of like moving back into the Christendom castle, you know, and we're driving down I-25. And I'll never forget, Kitty and I were in the car and a car goes by, goes by us. And if you don't know, Focus on the Family has been a mainstay here for, you know, years and years and decades. And on the bumper of that car was a bumper sticker that said "Focus on your own damn family." <laughs> and immediately, immediately, we understood that there was a polarization that's going on here. And it's like, oh, okay, so there, there are a lot of missionaries and you know, Christian people here, but there, there's a whole culture that's very antagonistic to. Christianity because of the way you know it's perceived, um, and as we have lived here, we understand that more and more, and so um, a lot of times people will tell me, oh, you live in kind of Christian Mecca, and I'm like, yeah, I know you think that, but that's really not the case, um, and then we moved, uh, we recently moved houses within this area. And we went from kind of a suburb setting, which it was kind of harder to get to know your neighbors. You had to be really intentional. There's larger property lines. And, you know, we had aspen trees around our yard. So we were almost in this like little enclave. Uh, We felt like monks. And so we uh, and it was a typical neighborhood. People pull in their garages, shut their doors. You have to get out and walk and really try to meet people. And so we moved directly downtown and we live in an urban context now in a house. And so the first thing I started doing was trying to, to walk every day and walk at different times of the day. And what I've learned is that there, there is a, um, there's a rhythm to our neighborhood. And so depending on what time of the day I walk, I will see different people in our neighborhood over and over again, whether it's in the park or in their front yard or they're walking also, or playing tennis down at the park or things like that. And so I, I just think, you know, when I'm talking to people about exegeting your context um, or where you feel called for ministry, or if you're going to plant a church there or whatever is I, the first thing I tell them is go walk the streets. I say, if you haven't walked the neighborhood for, you know, two or three months before you ever start a worship service or anything like that, um, you're kind of missing it. And then the last thing I'll say is um, that I think goes to this conversation. I I posted, I was reading um, Sherwood Lingenfelter, which no one will ever read unless you're taking seminary classes. (laughs) Um, But there was a great quote, which was that most churches reflect the culture of the missionaries that planted Mm -hmm. them then they do the culture. And so we so often, even if we're exegeting a place, we can fall into the trap of, okay, God's given me a great idea. So I'm going to plant that here. And so we kind of forget our CME diagram, you know, Christology to missiology to ecclesiology, that that works just in being with your neighbors also, you know, is to wait, listen, look, taste the neighborhood, and then, uh, and then develop a missional rhythm around your neighborhood. Yeah, Jamie,
1: I love what you said about having the posture of a learner. Because uh, just like you said, if we were to go, if the, if the five of us were to go somewhere else, to some other culture, the first thing we'd have to do is learn the culture. We'd have to learn what's important to them, how, like all the different things. What is, what is the history of this place? Um, I, I'll give you an example. Um, i can give you two examples. One uh, I, I didn't understand cultural ex- exegesis when I first went into ministry. So this is back in like the late nineties, early 2000. And uh, I remember I started working with this one pastor who shall be unnamed. And um, we were at this church and this church was very much a blue collar church. Okay. Um, you know, factory workers, all that stuff. So blue collar mentality that was the best way I could describe it. Well, he came in with a very white collar mentality and kind of expected to be treated with a white collar mentality. And I'm like, But that's not going to (laughs) work. Like, it's not going to work in this church. And it caused, you know, there was this tension. There was just stuff he couldn't quite understand. And eventually he ended up going to another church um, that was more in his context where he could be the white-collar guy. And I started to realize, hey, the culture you live in, you kind of have to understand and not impose your own will and thoughts onto it. I'll give you another example. Here's a good one. In my town of Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, our previous mayor was a, a, a great lady by the name of Madeline Rojero. and um, she made this huge uh, accidental faux pas at one point, where she started to beautify a particular part of town. It's called the Magnolia Corridor, uh, Magnolia Road. You know, used to have all these beautiful magnolias. Right now, it's it's probably um, you know seen as the lower socioeconomic part of town. Blah blah blah, all that stuff, right? Um, and she started to beautify it and that in the neighborhoods, all of the people in that area started losing their minds. And the reason was, is because the people in that area were predominantly African-American and back about in the fifties and sixties, Knoxville, just like a lot of major cities went through uh, urban renewal where, um, a lot of big things happened to kind of revitalize downtown cities. And during urban renewal in Knoxville, um, there was a huge displacement of African-American homes, businesses, and churches. And it was a scar on Knoxville. And it was a scar in the African-American community. You could talk to elderly people in our, in our community. They say, yeah, I remember them burning my house down. And then they were displaced to the Magnolia Corridor. So uh, now here is our white mayor coming in to beautify this area. And the neighborhood is like, oh, crap, they're going to kick us out again. Like, we're, we are about ready to be moved, even though it happened so long ago. And so Mayor Rojera was like, why is everybody so upset about this? So somebody sat her down, explained it to her. And then at one of her budget meetings, she came out and apologized. She was like, hey, I needed to listen before I did this thing. I need to understand before I did this. And I think church has been, um, we've kind of had, like you said, Roland, we've been a part of Christendom where we felt like our culture was the center of power in society. Well, we're not that anymore. Um, I don't think we ever, I don't know if we should have been or not, but we're not. And we need to take that posture of a learner. I love that. The posture of humility, the posture of, please, like, let me, let me hear and understand from you. Yeah.
4: Brooklyn, I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, your podcast listeners can't see this, but you're wearing your Kansas city chiefs, uh, t-shirt and. Uh, today, uh, tonight, you know, we play the Houston Texans and Chiefs play tonight, so I'm excited about that. Um, I would love to hear your experience as being like this, you know, little Midwestern kid coming to the big the Big Apple, like the culture. I mean, you know, people talk about oh, moved to New York, culture shock, and all of that. I mean, more than any of us, I mean, you, you've got to have some stories or just an, an impression of what that is actually like. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, I, so I moved to New York City from Kansas City um, right out of college. And so I went to school at a small Christian university in Indiana. So super Bible Belt, you know, uh, Midwest kind of upbringing, which is, was great in its own way. Um, but yeah, I definitely am resonating a lot, Jamie, with what you said about just this posture of learning um, and listening and asking good questions, because I think that was my entire first forever here, and still now I feel like I'm in a brand new season of my life here, Um, so I work in the restaurant industry, which is a really unique, fun, exciting little um, subculture within culture, I think, and so Um, One of the ways that I have learned and continue to learn was through the restaurant that I was working in in Times Square pre-COVID and coming straight from college, straight from Midwest to that uh, was really hard. And I just remember being exhausted all the time um, as I was like, this is all brand new and I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know my place here. Um, I don't know people like I thought I knew people. Um, I don't know what's important to people anymore because everybody that I'm meeting seems like a TV show character. Like I've never met anyone quite like them. Um, And so my first, I would say probably year here was, was just a lot of hard work of humbling myself to say, I'm new. I don't understand. I have a lot of questions and I'm just going to, I'm going to soak in. Um, the stories and the narratives of the people around.
4: Yeah. Me. I think you just said the the magic word or uh, the word of the day. Um, you know, we're talking a lot about learning and you've got to be a learner if you're going to do this stuff. But the key word is humility. Um, when I work with a ton of church planners and whenever someone is like, I'm a going to parachute drop into this town, we're going to do this for the kingdom of God, blah, 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 all good stuff. Good hearts. I get it. But there's so much arrogance wrapped up in in a lot of these guys where they they walk in and they're like, I know what this town needs, you know, and I got it and I'm gonna give it to them. Uh, And it just sounds like a really bad machismo type, you know, action movie but it's just, it's not good news. It just really isn't. And so I think humility is a huge, huge thing. As, as you learn a community, as you learn a culture, you learn a community, you learn what they're longing for, what their worldview is. Uh, One of the funniest stories I've ever heard about this is told by our friend, John Rittner. Uh, Rittner tells a story of when he was in Belgium. Uh, He was just a missionary. He's trying to figure it out, trying to like, how do I engage and connect? And you know, Rittner, you know, considers himself a bit of a baller. Uh, And so I know he plays weekly and played, uh, you know, uh, rec leagues in college and all that. So he goes on the mission field and, you know, a good missionary is is taught, you know, lean into your hobbies. What do you love? Go try to find people to do that. So, you know, he's in Belgium and, you know, he's meeting people and he's like, oh, you ball? Oh yeah, we ball. I love the ball. And so he gets invited to go ball on a Saturday uh, afternoon and shows up in his Jordans and is ready to shoot. And, He shows up and no basketball court, soccer field, and just completely like (laughs) falling means something completely different in Belton. It's just a great analogy of how we have our assumptions of this is what this means. And so I'm gonna show up and this is what we're gonna do. And it takes a special person. uh, I I think it's someone truly following after the heart of Jesus to say, you know what, I'm gonna humble myself and I'm going to let, I'm going to learn. And I think learning is just, people don't want to do it. They they don't value it. They want to just make the assumptions and get to the action. And it's just, it's,
1: you're going to miss out. And I think some of it too is, is you don't know what you don't know, right? Yeah. So you're always going to impose your own culture. I'll give you an example. I grew up in, I grew up overseas. I grew up in Germany from the ages of four to 14, One of our most fun things to ever do was it was my mom, my dad, and my brother and I, and we would go to museums. We would hit all the different museums. And uh, my mom, brother, and I would fly through a museum. My dad took forever in a museum. But by the time we were done, we would play a game. My mom, brother, and I would play the game, and it was spot the Americans because they would just impose – this is the 80s, right? They would just impose their culture – on everybody around it's the you know the belt buckle the the cowboy hat it looked like they were all from texas i don't know why but they were just loud and obnoxious you are like there they are yeah that's the spot i mean we were americans ourselves but you could see and it's and it's you would impose your view your culture as opposed to take as you said jamie take the posture of a learner take the posture of humility uh one of the phrases i like to say is to be genuinely curious, that's a phrase I heard several years ago from some great friends of mine, is how do you be genuinely curious about the other? You know, not just want to impose, here's, who, here's here's me, here's who I am, but I want to be curious about you, especially if you go back to the whole idea of the Imago Dei, that everybody's creating the image of God. So I can lean in, as Deb Hirsch would say, I can lean in and, and find the image of God in you. I want, to, I want to bring that out, but I have to be genuinely curious. I, I have to want to lean in.
3: And I think that uh, one of the things that helps to spur on that curiosity is when you start realizing that every culture has value. Um, So every single culture has its strong points and its weak points. So as you learn culture, you just, the more cultures that you get to know, the more of these valuable points you start to bring into your life and it just enriches it on the same the same way as you're learning things from other cultures you start to realize where your weak points are and so i think that um once you catch on to that then that makes you kind of hungry and passionate about learning from other people
1: yeah that's a great word i someone yesterday just gave me this word and, and i've been chewing on it he was talking about the idea of bias which when we say the word bias we always think bad bias is bad but he said, God has given us all our biases. In other words, you see the world a certain way, and it's when we bring all our biases together that real good things can happen, right? Like God said, hey, Terry, you see the world this way, Brooklyn, Jamie, Roland, you all see the world this way. So he's given you that, and we bring those things together, and it says, oh, what happens when when I recognize my bias? I recognize my blind spot, but I can maybe help you see a different way, right? You're helping me see a different way. Um, I think that's fascinating and to have that posture, it does, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of, what we've already said, it takes a lot of humility. Um, it is a posture that doesn't come naturally it is a posture you have to actually work at.
4: Yeah. I think the person who, uh, has done this most masterfully, uh, at least in the modern age, um, uh, is the late Tony Bourdain. Um, I, I mean, if you, if you watch any of his stuff, I mean, he is just a master of connecting with people. Uh, and obviously he's, he's not doing it for the kingdom of God, but, uh, one of the things I think is super helpful in this idea of, you know, exegesing a culture, uh, is getting to know people is, is identifying people that are already a part of that culture who understand it, who can serve as a counselor, uh, for yourself that they can, they can be a mentor, uh, in your culture. And that was one of the things that I think Tony did so well that, I mean, I would just watch, I would watch him work and he'd go around, literally around the world. And it would just be amazing how he would just find these people and they would be so generous. And I I think that's the thing that we discount is that if you're new to a culture or you don't understand a culture, there is someone who is so desperate in that culture to be proud and to brag and share and reveal everything about that culture we just simply have to seek them out and ask them to help us and, and like i'm so grateful for like dave chang and eddie Wang and these are guys who are kind of carrying that mantle you know uh you know and i love that they're all chefs you know and so those a, a true chef knows how to you know exegete a culture because it starts with food right it always starts with food
2: yeah how, how boring would, would Bourdain's show have been because he's a great he was a great chef as well. How boring would it would it have been if he goes to all these places and then he shows you how he cooks. He's going to cook in that place. but instead, I mean, he was a master at that. He like approached uh, other chefs and even sh- street food and that kind of stuff as a learner. you know, just kind of show me what you got. Yeah.
0: All this talk of just being learners in our culture and in our neighborhoods, I can't help but keep coming back to our current reality of COVID um, and how, yeah, I think COVID has allowed us to see maybe pieces of our culture that were a little harder to see before. Um, I know for me personally in my neighborhood, there's a line that forms right, out, right outside of my apartment every morning, and it's for this food pantry um, just around the corner, and so even just learning some some needs of the neighbors in a way that wasn't as obvious before has been really really interesting um, here in the city. I don't know if that's been true for you guys anywhere else.
4: Well, I was just gonna say, I think I think COVID has has hugely impacted culture. You know, even um, we have a family that we've that's been our quarantine. Uh, so basically, you know, using Rittner's, um COVID scale. If anyone, if you haven't seen that, email us, we'll get that to you. It's brilliant. But basically, you know, having those, those conversations say, Hey, this is our quarantine level. That's your quarantine level. And so we, we team up and say, Hey, we're going to be each other's outlet when we get too stir crazy. Um, but one of the things that we've done with this family, that's been so phenomenal that really, I didn't even think about this until just recently, but the sense of communitas, that we've been able to build, that we're surviving this pandemic together. Um, and it's huge. And so more, more time than any, I think the culture is people are desperate. I think people are desperate to survive in their own way, whatever it looks like. Uh, but the culture is, is ripe for that. And so how do you, how do you take advantage of the, you know, that's the conversation that I'm curious about is this is the reality. How do we, how do we take this and use it to best our advantage
1: and connect with people? Yeah, and I think, I mean, you're right. I mean, anything, crisis is a revealer of culture. Crisis sure. also changes culture. And so to be aware of that, I think is huge, you know, to, to actually um, open yourself to what is going on. So that's kind of where we started with the zeitgeist conversation. Like, let's define the zeitgeist of our time. What is the spirit of our time? What do, what do we actually see? What's happening? And constantly being aware of that, I think is, is actually really huge. So let me just kind of sum up here real quick. I mean, so what I've heard is, is like what you said, Jamie. Be a learner. You know, be be curious. You know, have the posture of someone who's going to 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 be a, a you know student of what's going on. I've definitely heard the the idea of humility, uh, which is huge for us. <laughs> you know, especially as proud Westerners, the idea of humility and how do we actually take that posture into our communities? Um, uh, Terry, I like what you said about. Um, getting to know the local experts. What I wrote down was the idea of tour guides, you know. Um, if you ever explore the concept of a person of peace, there's some great books written on that, uh, but the person of peace, you know, the people who love your culture. I mean, when you said that, it made me think there's a town south of us called uh, Chattanooga, and uh, my family and I, we like to go there every once in a while for vacation, and they have this electric bus that goes through the heart of downtown, and one time my family were taking the electric bus and there was this lady that came over and she said, y'all new here. She's from the South. So, you know, it's like, y'all new here. Or like, Oh, we're visiting. She goes, Oh honey, let me tell you about our town. And she spent the entire bus ride telling us and she was so proud of her town telling us all this stuff, telling us all that. She went past her stop all the way to our stop and then like, got back on the bus and you know took it back to hers, but just to be able to explain her town to us, you know, And I think just an ounce of uh, curiosity and an ounce of boldness, there are people out there who'd love to tell you about their town, who'd love to tell you about what's going on.
4: Yeah. Uh, Just to jump on that thought, because not too long, but uh, we had the exact same situation happen when we went to Memphis. We did the little trolley uh, and we had a gentleman who was like, let me explain everything to you. And we actually did two revolutions of the trolley. And he was pointing. That's the pyramid. This is why that was built. This is what it is now. This is what it's going to be. And so I think, I think there's something about public transportation. You know, We love being in our cars. We love our headphones. We love our own thing. But if you want to learn, you just open up your ears and listen. And there are people who will be happy to tell you. And public transportation is a great way to do that.
1: Let's be honest. It's really about Southern hospitality.
4: <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs>
1: <laughs> How many times does that happen to you in New York, Brooklyn? Yeah. Does it happen a lot? I don't know.
0: We're all, we all have our headphones in. No one's listening to anyone. <laughs> <You're,
1: you're kidding. laughs> yeah, I still remember the first time I went to New York was back in the uh, early to mid '90s, and um, it was pre Giuliani, which Giuliani changed the face of New York. He just did. And uh, I remember being up there. It was a bunch of us Southerners, twenty of us. You know, we're all up there, and this guy comes up to us. The subway goes. You're not from around here, are you? We're like, oh no. How'd you know? And he's like, you're all smiling. He just walked off. Listen,
0: I didn't understand why people were scared of me when I smiled at them on the platform because from Kansas, you smile at everyone. About a year and a half into the living here, someone smiled at me on the platform. and My first thought was, oh my gosh, they could kill me. So <laughs> the city changes you. You understand I the culture get it now. now. It.
1: Yeah, you understand it. Okay. So yeah, so tour guides, I think that's huge. And then understanding the history of a place, I think is huge. Understand what is going on. Uh, I feel like I used to know Knoxville really well, uh, but I, I have this friend who's a, a Knoxville historian. He's pointed me towards books, and he's just taught me things that I'm like, oh my gosh! Like for example, that whole idea about urban renewal—that is a scar that the city of Knoxville wears, and it still affects the town today. You know, and I would have known that if I hadn't become you know a student of history, and then also uh, you know really understand the demographics of your town understand um what's going on there no uh, i think as you would say terry don't put too much reliance in on, on the the demographics yeah. uh, but you need to understand understand what is going on and then i think uh bottom line for all of this is is be spirit led is be so in touch with the spirit um that that you're following the spirit as you do this so it is it's the prayer walks it is the um it is the how do you how do you um how do you find out where God is working, you know, and join him there? Um, all of those things. Would you guys have anything else to throw in on that?
4: Yeah, I would I would add, um, Roland, you, you mentioned walking your neighborhood and I think the part of being spirit led and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a fat guy, I, I, I have to walk so I don't die. Um, but, you know, uh, I'm fat, I can say that. Um, but, you know, I do notice a difference when I, my intentionality, uh, to be spirit led in that, you know, I got to get my steps in. But when I am intentional about the 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 landmarks in my neighborhood, uh, the houses where, oh, I know the people that live in there. I know the people that sleep in that house, and just praying and being more intentional about that, uh, you just notice a difference. And it's so it's so funny to see how God God uses that in response to that, and. Um, my wife and I, we've we've been in this neighborhood for uh, 15 years. And it's the longest I've ever been anywhere in my life. And it's the longest my wife's been anywhere in her life. Uh, uh, and this, like, we were, we were, me and you and I were having this conversation and we were talking about, uh, you know, h- how long you live in a place and how you interact and you walk it and do that. And, you know, for me, the longest I'd ever been in one place was like, three years. And so now, we've talked about moving and there's just a part of me that's like, I I can't because I've walked the streets and my heart is is united with this place. And it's because of the prayers. And so I love rolling that you're walking your neighborhood. Uh, And I know you're taking Duke out and and you know, you're getting some steps with your your beautiful pup. But yeah, any, any way we can do that is huge. It's important.
0: Yeah, thank you guys for jumping in and joining this call today, talking about just cultural acts of Jesus. Jamie, thanks for joining um, the conversation. It's great to just hear from your experience as well. Um, and I just want to end up with this blessing for us as we go into this week. Uh, may we allow the Holy Spirit to guide us on the journey as we continue to learn from our culture. May we be more like Jesus as we seek to live in love and community. As it is in heaven, so let it be.
2: Amen.